<clears throat> Good morning, everyone. My name is Dan Mike, and I'd like to uh, invite you to study the Bible with me for a little bit today as we end our time, uh, our, our season of Advent. This is the last Sunday of Advent. Um, and as highly and jolly as it can be for some of us, I just like to uh, acknowledge that for others, this can be actually like a really painful time. Um, you know, not so merry, right? And so... Ed Balance, our dear friend, is putting on a, a time of prayer and a time of solidarity on Tuesday night here at 7 p.m. upstairs called The Longest Night. And uh, it's just a time just to open up and just to, to pray together if you're feeling like, um, like maybe uh, you don't know how you're going to make it through this one, you know. And so just wanted to put that before you if you haven't seen it yet just because we want to be able to come around one another as a church, so... It is the last Sunday of Advent, and so I'd like to just make a contribution here um, as we have been talking about this theme of beholding the Lamb of God. Um, it's a theme that's not really, I, I don't think, ancillary. It's not peripheral to the, uh, to, the, to the story of the whole Bible. It's actually something woven through the entire thing. I mean, as Rod has kind of shown the last few weeks, this is a theme that's even going all the way back to the first book of the Bible. And so today I'd like to invite you to turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. When I think of the theme of the Lamb of God, beholding the Lamb of God, you know, this connection was made by John the Baptist, as we heard about last week. And I think it's important to sort of wrestle with this depiction of God because there were some of the people around John the Baptist who didn't see it coming. So, so right there, you have in a picture, people who, who, who anticipated this and people who didn't. And we have the same opportunity even now. What, what kind of God was revealed at the first Christmas when the Lord was born into this world? I mean, he even said himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it's important as we celebrate the incarnation to, to, to redefine and reorient who it is that Jesus revealed. What kind of God are we celebrating coming into this world? And when John saw him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. It's not a minor point, but this is a major point for the self-revelation of who God is. And if, we can, and if we miss that, all kinds of dysfunctional thinking and practices can work its way into our lives and into how we represent God in this world. I think it's good for us to, to pause in this season and think through some of this stuff. And as I said, today I want to read you from the book of Revelation. Now maybe we could just take a moment, okay, I've got like a few pages of notes here on like the book of Revelation because... Uh, as I even say that, some stuff, you know, might be churning among us that need to kind of get recognized. Like, maybe we can do a one-minute group chat together, okay? <laughs> My patented group chat. <laughs> if I say the book of Revelation, what's a word, a phrase, or a feeling that comes to mind? If you wouldn't mind somebody shouting out, what would you say? Judgment. Judgment. Okay, there's something going on here. There's a, there's a process that's happening of something or someone being judged. What else am I hearing? Prophecy, majesty. Wow, hey, that's insightful. Okay, there is 
vision of something majestic, prophecy from Tiffany. I, I, yes, this is a prophetic word. There's something that's happening here that is a critique. There, there's a point, there's a reason that the book of Revelation was written. Anything else? The gospel triumphs, the new heaven and the new earth. Restoration, that's another word for new. What'd you say, Doug? Anticipation. The spirit and the bride say, come. Marriage feast, that is a huge theme. The wedding supper of the lamb. I think for me, if I were just to be sitting where you're sitting, one of the words I would say would be rapture, okay? I mean, I could be the only one, but like even as an adult, I felt like I've missed the rapture, right? I, I mean... It happens to me all the time. There should be some sort of like psyche eval, I think, for people who watch Thief of the Night like too early, like in life. Like, no, Dan, you have not been left behind. Like, just let it go. Okay, and so, I mean, <laughs> um, what is the book of Revelation? This is important to interpret because, uh, and it is something that can be very dividing. Like, as I just sort of thought about, like the different people that you talk to when this topic comes up, especially in my field, it's, it's almost one or the other. Like if I talk to somebody about the book of Revelation, it's either like, I'm not touching it. Okay, a little apprehensive here. You know, they, they, I don't know what's all that dragons and you know, beasts or whatever. Or I talk to somebody who knows more about the book of Revelation than God himself. Like, uh, you ever met that person? Like, I imagine like God looking down and being like, I didn't know that that spelled backwards said Led Zeppelin 666. Or, I, it was just a coincidence, you know? Like, uh, and so what, where are we in between? And, and like, what's the purpose of this? And I am a little wary of like the expert on this. And I don't want to come across as that in any way because I'm not. But I do want to acknowledge this is part of our Bible. This is a word for you and I. This is something that we can't, we don't have to be afraid of. It's something that, that could be encouraging. It was meant to be encouraging to the church. And so when you study the Bible, this is just what I do. I, my first question is what type of literature am I reading? And this could be part of the problem uh, when it comes to the book of Revelation is that it appears to be kind of straightforward right at the beginning. But once you get to like chapter five, things just start getting like really big and different and, and, and hard to kind of follow. Um, it looks like an epistle. <laughs> John, the writer of this, right? He's writing, he, he interacts with a vision that he has of Jesus. And he says, write down th this message to the seven churches in, F or in Turkey. And you're reading it, you're like, okay, I'm tracking with it. It kind of sounds like, you know, one of the writings of Paul, like letter to be kind of circulated around. Um, but then it changes. The style of literature changes to what is referred to as apocalyptic literature. And the hard part about just jumping into that is that we don't have a one-to-one -one, um, comparison for that type of literature in, in our modern day. And so part of this is, is a message um, that by nature is meant to be kind of shocking, creative, artistic, and even, uh, and even cryptic. I mean, he is in prison because of his testimony of Jesus. And so as he's writing in a context of oppression, right, in the first century, Roman Empire, you can't just come out and say things like Rome is fallen, is wrong. You know, you, you, you have to start to use words like Babylon. Now, 
I think it would be a mistake to also just say this is only about Rome. It's not just about Rome. It's about what Rome loves. This, is, this becomes a greater critique that is cast into the future of the church forever of empire. That's why Babylon fits. Because even in the hearts of mankind, all the way back in Genesis, when the Tower of Babel started, there's been this desire for empire and for greatness and power and domination. And it is that that John and the book of Revelation is critiquing and challenging and saying that you better be careful because if you start to be faithful to that empire, to your empire, you lose faithfulness to God himself. And so the question sort of becomes, who is your God? Who are you going to be faithful to? And what we come to in chapters 4 and 5, I think, set the tone for the entire vision of Revelation. If you don't get this, I think that you're not going to be able to uh, have a full picture for the rest of it. And John is welcomed into the throne room. That's what we call it, the throne room of heaven. He's welcomed into heaven. He sees this throne and angels and there are 24 elders and, you know, that could be a representative of 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, you know, it could be these, there are these people that are there and there's angels and they're worshiping. And here I think it's just important to note the very first sort of like dagger into the empire is they are speaking out, specifically calling the one on the throne, Lord and God. And in the time that this was written, Domitian was the emperor and he was the first Caesar to make it a law that you had to call him. Lord and God. There's a confrontation that's specifically happening here. Um, and I think it can be helpful for us to also just enter into that confrontation and ask ourselves, am I making an idol or a God out of something that isn't God? Am I being faithful to something that I am not called to be faithful to? Or have I made a bigger deal out of something that I shouldn't have done? And so um, my favorite chapter in the book of Revelation by far is chapter 5. And today, that's what I'd like to invite you to uh, read with me. So if you're able to stand for the reading of uh, Scripture, I'd like to read to you Revelation chapter 5. The continuation of this vision of the throne room. Revelation 5 and verse 1. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll... It had writing on both sides, and it was sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. Then, then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. But then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and 24 elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand, the hand of power of him who sat on the throne. 
And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were holding a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you have ransomed for God people from every tribe, every nation, language, and people. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering, thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and elders, and they sang in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. And then I heard everybody. Philippians uh, 2 <laughs> reminds me here. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's within them saying to him on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. And Crossroads Bible Church said amen as well. Amen. Okay. Preaches itself basically. The um, chapter five has been my favorite chapter of Revelation for a while. Scripture memory has been a part of my life and practice for the last 15 years or so. And I'll remember going all the way back. This was the first ch chapter that I committed to memory. I, I just wanted in my heart, and it has become central to my theology. Part of the reason why I love it is this succinct sort of linear story that it tells. Um, it has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. Or in other words, it's got a problem, it's got a solution, and then it has a response. So if you're taking notes, I'd like to wander around in the realm of the problem for a few moments. What is the problem? The problem is... The humanity has an issue that it cannot fix. There is an issue that we cannot fix. Okay, so the first thing you see here in, in verse 1 through 4 is this mysterious scroll. This scroll with seven seals. And before you say, okay, you know, I don't know anything about scrolls, I'm out. What the scroll represents is the plan of action that God has to bring evil and injustice in the world to an end. This, would, this represents, in a sense, our deepest desire and hope for all the things that we cannot fix to be put right. John, I mean, this is why he has such a visceral reaction to this, for no one is found worthy to put this into action. What it requires is somebody who has the power and the ability to read it. And as you see in chapter 6, as it's open, so does the events of this plant. They start to become un, un, to, to revealed and enacted. I mean, it's one thing to read Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, right? It's another thing to be in that synagogue at Nazareth Ridge when Jesus stood and, and, and read that and said, what? Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Not by coincidence, but because he had the power and the ability to say, this is about me. I am proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, right? And so they're looking for somebody to open this scroll who has the ability to back it up. And nobody can. 
There's all kinds of ways to connect to this um, in, in our world and in our day. And there, there's all kinds of options that were in that world uh, as well to deal with this problem that we can't fix. And if we're not careful, some of the solutions that we come up with that would be maybe if we were to write that scroll or if we were to take that scroll from his hand and, and, and push it forward. There's all kinds of options of what we would do to destroy evil in this world or to make the world a better place. And part of the critique that's happening here, just even in this admitting that nobody on earth is, is worthy or able to do this, is to challenge us to think, have I made my version of how to make the world a better place into an idol? And is it separate from Jesus in any way? There were options in John's day, and let me just remind you of some of them. One of the options was through religion, okay? Through, let's just say, this is gonna sound extremely reductionistic, but to be a Jew. Judaism wasn't a bad option in the Roman Empire, depending on the decade that you lived in. This was something that was given special privileges and perks. I mean, it was an ancient religion, and they recognized that it had been kind of like, it had proven the test of time through all the you know, various trials and tribulations that they had endured, and so they were allowing this to continue. Therefore, you, you didn't have to validate the Roman pantheon if you were a Jew. You, you could be a mono, you, you could just believe in the one God of Israel. If you were a Jew, you, you didn't have to serve in the military for Rome. Like you got an exemption from that. This is okay. This is good. And so what starts to, to develop though, as we can see in the gospels, there is a way to, to live within religion that to live within their faith that counsels out the God of the faith. There's a way to make it into such a big deal that it turns into something that um, the, the religion and the practices itself are the things that we worship and that we follow. So to be kind of in this option, one has to de you know, deeply believe that the things that I'm doing in my religion are gonna make the world a better place. But what you end up seeing in this option through just even the lens of history is that they didn't end up offering something that different from the world. It turned out to be a war. Right around the time that Revelation was written, there were these revolts where they started to pick a fight with Rome. And what that looks like is we are just going to play with the same rules that you're playing with. And if we defeat you, this is what we want. We want you to be out of the way so that our version of how to be in this world will, will, um, become, will become the biggest uh, you know, part of this culture and therefore make the world a better place. If everybody would just do what we do with our religion, then everything would be okay. And the problem is they ended up turning this into a, a weapon and they want to destroy the other person. You see seeds of that in the triumphant entry with Jesus. You see seeds of that in the way they wanted Jesus himself to be this military leader, this king. Their solution ended up being part of the problem. And any overemphasizing your religion can also become a problem. 
It can be something where you, you create a bar that's so high that nobody is able to get into it. And in the end, you're straight back to where John was. Nobody is found worthy to open that scroll. It's a tempting path to go down option one because it feels like control. It feels like, you know, me growing up, this is a big part of my life actually, being so kind of like religiously <laughs> strict, I know, okay, this is a very long time ago for me, if you know me, okay, <laughs> being, being so tidy that my friends who weren't as Christian as me, at least it gave me a shoe in. Like, it was a way to sort of evaluate my progress, like, if there were people who weren't as good as me, uh, you know, then I have some sort of validation or some chip that I can play in the age to come. And again, it becomes part of the problem. Option number two is kind of similar fundamentally, but in their world, it was to be Roman. Rome actually promised to do away with evil. It's the Pax Romana. It, it's their plan to actually bring peace to the world. One scholar that I read said the, the best way to understand what Rome worshipped was just to say Rome's religion was Rome itself. You see, they blended their belief about their nation and their belief about God so much that they couldn't tell the difference between the two. Scholars refer to this as civil religion. If you're unfamiliar with that term, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's taking something that is meant to be secular and giving it a sacred, uh, attributing sacred status to it. And this can be a very murky place to live. I mean, what ends up happening is as the country that would be participating in civil religion eventually starts to not be able to know where one ends and where the other begins. Eventually, especially in Rome, as things became so transactional with the gods, they literally believed that the more they appeased the gods, the more prosperity would come to their nation. See how that blend happened with, with, with their worship and with their nation and, and how they started to not be able to see a difference between one or the other. I mean, this is a very tricky place to be in because then what happens when, when you do experience seasons of prosperity or seasons of growth and development, what, what often ends up happening is countries like Rome will start to justify any way of maintaining that level of prosperity. Or, or, or so as a Roman citizen, there was just no way to critique or evaluate uh, some of the oppression that was going on. You're a threat then to the prosperity of everyone. So you would then be ground up by their brutal military force. So this sort of like domination status where you have this big thing that's so intimidating that nobody will challenge it um, becomes really dysfunctional. And, and in the end, it doesn't actually give more peace. It actually became more of the problem. They, they would bring war just as quickly as anybody else. And so really their version of peace wasn't peace at all. It's a very pervasive and tempting kind of mentality to get into, to start to think, um, you know, even in a powerful country like ours, is there a separation at all in, in some of our thinking about um, maybe like your identity in the kingdom of heaven as a, as a son or a daughter of God? Does that supersede 
uh, your identity, uh, you know, as somebody who is an American or not? And, and how do you figure that out? Because this could be an option that could lead to some uh, really dysfunctional places that don't look Christian at all. It's a tricky option, option number two. But it is unworthy to take the scroll and to deal with things. And so John weeps. And if you don't agree that, that, that we have a problem that we cannot fix, then I would like to, to have what you're having. Because, I mean, when we really just take a look around, there's stuff that we just can't, that we can't fix this. It's like, I feel like we're just in triage and we're constantly trying to like bind up wounds and heal people, but the battle is still going on and there's nothing we can do about it. Like, <laughs> I mean, how many of us in the last two years are like confronted with the harsh reality of death? This is injustice. This is not something that we were meant to do and to have a part of our lives. And we can't fix that. Like, how do you, you know that you just, it causes us to grieve and be frustrated and say, who can fix this? I mean, think about, uh, you know, Missy told me yesterday, Missy Wiseman, that a thousand people in Grand Rapids alone are trafficked every year. The kids in Afghanistan right now and, and in Iran and in, and in areas of the world that they just can't get what they need. I mean, kids all over the world are struggling with starvation or, or, or with uh, being marginalized and, and oppressed. And, and it's like we try and offer the, the mercy and the aid that we can. But, I mean, we can't fix some of these problems. And it causes us to weep. And we stand with John and we say, who is worthy? The cool thing about Christianity is that in the Bible, we are, we're not given like a rose-colored rose glasses. It, it causes us, and it tells us, I see the problem. It causes us to wrestle with like, the huge issues in this world, and it doesn't sweep it under the rug and say, no, 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 that doesn't exist. It exists, but the, but the message of the Bible isn't one that wants to leave us in a place of despair. The overall message of the Bible is not something that wants to leave us in a place feeling hopeless against this, you know, this scroll that cannot be opened. Just listen to that elder and how quickly he wanted to answer this question when he walked by John and he looked at him and said, you don't have to cry about this. You can stop. You don't have to grieve this in a sense that leads to despair. We have a solution. Yes, we have a problem, but we have a solution. The, uh, the elder says to uh, John, just look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has overcome. That's the Greek word for Nike. Okay, next time you put your Nikes on. All right, this is, this is part of our thing. Has overcome. He has overcome, and, and so we are expecting then, as we have been giving these, you know, references here, the lion and the root of David, to see something in kind. Tim Maggie from the Bible Project, I don't know if any Bible Project fans here. It's pretty cool. Uh, he, I'll never forget, he said, in the New Testament references, the Old Testament, you can just think of it as a hyperlink. You know, like an email, is that too nerdy? When you, you know, you, you click on the word in the email and it takes you to something else. And these are for sure hyperlinks. They're all over in the book of Revelation. There's over 250 of them. 
All you have to do is to click on the Lion of Judah or the, the, the Root of David, and you get to see this picture of a courageous king, somebody who is going to come and be ferocious and like you would expect John to then turn and see something that paces with, with Rome or, or the empire, something that uh, looks like this muscle-bound like beast slayer or whatever, like this is our king. And he turns and he sees the lamb who was slain. He has overcome. He is worthy to take the scroll and to begin the process of ridding evil from this world. This is the king of the kingdom of God. This is what he looks like. This is who he is. And his kingdom is fundamentally different than all the other options that are out there. The path of the one who is in his kingdom is different from all of the other options uh, that are out there. This is option three. <laughs> the lamb who was slain. He is the king of a kingdom who has no first and has no last. For has done away with all um, evil competition or, 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 or destructive competition. This is a kingdom where those who mourn are comforted. This is a kingdom where those who are marginalized and outside are, are brought into the banquet and are welcomed in. This is a kingdom where it isn't inaugurated by tanks and bombs and, and, and violence, but it is inaugurated by a word of blessing. And it is inaugurated by the king who said, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I want you to know this is what I'm about. Setting people free, restoring sight to the blind, releasing the prisoners. This is what my kingdom is like. And this is the king. But is this the king that, that you have in your heart? Is the question. As... I just think we will emulate the type of God that we believe in. And I'll confess, for much of my life, I sort of had an assumption that the, that the cross, the lamb who was slain, the crucified Savior, this was like something Jesus had to do, but he didn't really want to do it. He just had to do it because of me. There's a, there's a big shift there. It, it would assume he isn't normally self-sacrificial if I wouldn't have <laughs> pushed him into it, you know. What kind of God is he? And who did he reveal when he came into this world? Somebody who is self-sacrificial and for the joy set before him go to the cross. Or somebody who would rather not. And if we believe that he would rather not go to the cross, then of course we're going to emulate in our sacrifice resentment towards the people that we're sacrificing for. But if he fundamentally is self-sacrificial and loving, and if he is choosing to be identified in this vision as the lamb who was slain, then we are also people who are given our marching orders to emulate the, the lamb who was slain in our own lives. And this, this subtle shift, I mean, unfortunate name here, but Eugene Boring in his book on Revelation said, <laughs> okay, I read it for everybody. Okay, don't worry, it's not that boring. Uh, he specifically said in this shift, you know, this new forging of the lion, of God's lion is the lamb. He said is the most mind-bending rebirth story in all of literature. 
I want something that isn't just a, a, a rebranding of everything else because it's not working to just start fighting with everybody else the same rules that they're fighting with that just hopefully we win and then we have the power. What we are presented with in the New Testament is a power that is much different than all of the empires in this world. It is the power of a lamb. And it is empowering to us as we have a resurrected lamb, somebody who the, the promise is as you follow him in this lifestyle, you are also given empowerment to actually do it. In the words of Jesus himself, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow him into year 12 of your marriage, into year 30 of your friendship with your friends, into uh, your workplace. Take up your cross and follow him and, and show that you identify with the lamb who was slain as you, you might even be lucky enough to actually have an enemy, in, a real enemy in your life where you cannot just tolerate them, but love them. I know for me, I'm going with the lamb who was slain. I want to identify with him. And there is no Caesar. There is no party line. There is no plan of comfort or prosperity that I will be willing to trade for my identification with the lamb who was slain. What I see when I see this lamb is the most beautiful, self-sacrificial, loving thing that I can think of. And it draws me into a place of worship and draws me into a place of surrender which is exactly what we see in the rest of this chapter. After the solution is presented, there is a response. So I'd just like to make a few comments on the response. And if you choose to join, I mean, the book of Revelation says this is gonna be a person who identifies with the blood of the lamb and has their own word, a word the word of their testimony. You'd be in good company. This, this, the people that identified with this changed the world. I have a couple quotes I'd like to share to just sort of flavor it from um, historians that I've been reading. In one book that I was reading by Michael Green, Evangelism in the Early Church, he said 80% or more of the evangelism in the earlier church was done by ordinary Christians just explaining their life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just answering questions about why. Why are, they, why are they different? And why are they choosing to be like that? And how are you able to forgive that person or to show grace in that situation or to be generous with your resources? What is up with that? We are not feeling the same level of peace and certainty that you are. And, and they just are able to then answer the lamb who was slain took away my sin. He has overcome, and he welcomes us in to overcoming with him through self-sacrifice. Another thing that I was thinking through is um, the other quote about, really, I just stop in the first line again. It was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders. It was Christians. <laughs> it's a... You know, and that goes on to explain. It wasn't like they had this big thing to bring people to. It was their life in their house, at their table. It was like, 
what attracted outsiders wasn't their worship. It was the Christian themselves. Something had happened in them that was so compelling that it drew people in. And I want that. And I want that for this church to be such, like what Jesus said, a light in the darkness. that people can't help but see it and give glory to God in heaven. Practically speaking, what uh, the picture that we have in the rest of the chapter is, uh, number one, a whole group of people surrounding the Lamb. It's concentric circles. As we read it, you start to see there's the elders and then there's uh, a bunch of angels and everybody really ends up joining into this. Uh, like I said when I was reading, it reminds me of Philippians 2, uh, 11. And what the challenge here is for me is, is to evaluate this week does that picture kind of fit, like, anything in your life or, or some of it and not others? Like, is there something, if you had just a coffee, you know, time of coffee with this chapter, would, would you say, my marriage looks like that? The Lamb of God is, is seated on the throne in the center of it, and we are surrounding it. Um, my job looks like this, okay? I mean, one-third of our lives are given to, you know, what we, what, what we do is our career. I mean, I'd hate to end my life and say that a whole third of my life had nothing to do with the land. It was, it was completely separate, okay? No, no. Like, welcome this, uh, this discernment into your life and say, is there something that is not, is, because what it'll have is that there will be something else that's central there. It's what's central in this regard is, you know, my finances or what's central here is actually just my comfort and pleasure or what's central here is my plans of control and how I figure my life to be. And that stuff is where we, we start to see, like, in the end, they start to just surrender the whole thing. Um, the second thing that I see is they articulate specifically surrender, right? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. It, the wealth is yours. They surrender it all. The wealth is yours. All the power that we, we thought we got through living our, you know, strict religious lives or all the power and control that we thought we got from having like the momentum and the big uh, power in this world, we're giving it up. We're surrendering it to you. Glory and might and you know, just go down the list and start to think, which one of those things do I not want to let go of? And ask why and how can I just set that before the Lamb and say, it's actually yours. And maybe in your own life, there's something that you would like to add to that list. If there's something more specific, uh, a relationship or, you know, uh, like even your specific career or something like that, you can feel free to join their chorus and join the trajectory of the church and maybe even all of creation itself as being one who says, I'm putting the lamb at the center of this whole thing. And in that place, and in that place only are we able to start actually experiencing the life from the Lamb of God. This is who he is. This is who he revealed himself as. And so this is who we get to, to, to receive as our Lord and our God, the Lamb who was slain. So let's take a moment and pray through this. Um, and we have a couple of signs to sort of help our meditation. If there's any of us here, Lord, who just has something to surrender to you, um, let that repentance be done because of your kindness and because you've drawn us in through your beauty and drawn us in through your love. 
if it was something that we were controlling, whether option one or two, um, or trusting too much in, we just open our hands up to you and say, I don't know, I just want to be like you. I want to be one of the saints who say, I didn't shrink back even to death, but by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, we stood with you. Help us to find practical ways to live consistently with this and ways to show that this is who you really are to this world so that they can see you and become like you and that they can experience you, the light of the world who came in that the darkness could not even overcome. Jesus, you are our king and champion. We do not look up and, and want to see anything different, anything but you. Radically change our imaginations of what power and what victory looks like in this world. And help us to learn as we go into our family Christmases or into this season or whatever that if we are welcomed into ending injustice in this world with you and overcoming, it's through sacrifice and love. We love you, Jesus. Amen.